0: This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of
1: faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore and I'm your host. This week, I wanted to rebroadcast another episode As you may or may not know, June is Men's Health Month, so I wanted to rebroadcast right here. I know it's the the last week of June, I guess, but I wanted to rebroadcast an episode that we did last year with Nate Pyle, who's a pastor and an author, and Dr. Bart Andrews about men's mental health masculinity are ideas of masculinity within the church and within the culture at large uh, why men tend to ask for help less in certain areas what we know about how we can help men get more mental health care things along those lines so i wanted to rebroadcast this one it's a great episode Steve is back as co-host, obviously since it was back in 2017, so I really think you'll enjoy it. A few quick things that I wanted to mention, some newer things, ways that you can help support the show or just things that you might be interested in. As always, you can support the show on Patreon by going to cxmhpodcast.com slash support. You can sign up. There's a bunch of different levels that get you free things. You can get stickers and mugs and join the exclusive Facebook community, things along those lines. We also have a variety of CXMH merchandise available. You can go to cxmhpodcast.com slash shop. That'll take you to red bubble site where you can buy stickers or mugs or t-shirts. In particular, last week we actually released a brand new design. It's our church and state design. It's a really cool one. I really like it. It's, I think, one of my favorite designs that we've done. And that's available in all kinds of sizes and colors and styles. So make sure you go check that out. We tend to Do these things kind of for a limited time until we decide that we don't really like the, the style anymore or we come out with new designs. So make sure you go check those out. There's also greeting cards available there for a variety of holidays that say go to counseling on the bottom if you like kind of the go to counseling things that we put out every once in a while. So make sure you check out that. All the profits or proceeds from the CXMH merch goes to help make the show possible for the time and the technology and the hosting and all that type of stuff. So if you want to support the show but think I don't want to be a monthly Patreon supporter, you can definitely go to Redbubble and check out all those. You can find that at shop. One last new development is you can support the show by shopping on Amazon. The same Amazon that you already use, all the same benefits, everything. But if you go to cxmhpodcast.com slash Amazon, it will redirect you. And anything that you buy using that link will help support the show. Just a couple cents here and there. But if you do a lot of shopping on Amazon or if you're going to buy a book or anything like that, feel free, please use that code that will help make the show possible. That's about all I have. I know that was a whole bunch of things, but just wanted to let you know about some of those things. So without any more nonsense up front from me, here is our episode Uh, It was recorded back in 2017. So if, again, if there's some things that aren't directly applicable, that's why. But here is our episode on men's mental health. With Steve Austin, back as co host, and with guests Nate Pyle and Dr. Bart Andrews. This episode of CXMH is brought to you by Stigma Fighters. Stigma Fighters is a nonprofit organization dedicated to giving people living with mental illness a voice. Share your story in a thousand words about
2: living with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety,
1: PTSD. DID and more at www.stigmafighters.com. All right, welcome to the show. Today we are talking about men and men's mental health. Uh, As always, Steve is here and then we have two fantastic guests today. First up, we have Nate Pyle. Nate is a pastor uh, in Indiana, and then he's also author of Man Enough How Jesus Redefines Manhood. He, as I said, is a pastor and he writes at NatePile.com. How are you today, Nate?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on.
1: Absolutely. Welcome to the show. We're glad to have you. And then we also have Dr. Bart Andrews. Dr. Andrews is Vice President of Clinical Practice and Evaluation at Behavioral Health Response, uh, as well as a number of other things. He has over 20 years of experience providing behavioral health services. Dr. Andrews, how are you doing today?
3: I'm doing great. I'm an honor to join you
1: all. This is a really important issue, and I'm glad you're having these conversations.
3: Well,
2: thanks for being here.
1: Yeah. Dr. Andrews, to start with, will you tell us just a little bit about your background? I know there's a a lengthy bio there that I didn't make it through because I was afraid I would pronounce some things wrong, but tell us a little bit about your background.
3: Yeah. Uh, sure. Uh, so I think some things that are really important. Um, I am a psychologist. I am the vice president um, at a crisis and um, kind of a telemedicine behavioral health agency in St. Louis, Missouri, behavioral health response. I've actually been at behavioral health response since I left um, my doctoral internship back in 1998. So I started here as a crisis clinician and taking hotline calls and then became a block outreach uh, clinician as well. Um, Suicide um, uh, intervention and prevention has been uh, the bulk of my uh, efforts over the last 20 years or so. It's a a huge part of what we do here at BHR, and I think that um, one of the things that's also important for the the group to know is that um, I am a suicide attempt survivor. Mm -hmm. Uh, In in fact, it took me, as as a professional, um, it took me 16 years to actually start discussing that publicly. I now uh, make it a point of discussing it publicly as often as possible because there's a lot of us out there. In fact, more than, than, um, than people may realize, there's over um, a million suicide attempts uh, in this country a year. Um, mm-hmm. And it's something that has a tremendous amount of prejudice and discrimination around. Um, and it's actually one of the things that makes it really hard for people to reach out and get help, especially men. Um, and so I make a point of, of uh, disclosing that as often as possible. And I, I have a tremendous amount of passion um, for uh, behavioral health and for suicide prevention and um, the treatment of, of mental conditions we call mental illnesses and substance use disorders. We think we know a lot about these conditions. And the truth of the matter is that we don't. Um, And uh, it's really interesting that there's a a tremendous amount of information that we know is sort of true about these conditions. um, And we tend to characterize them as medical conditions when, in fact, that's often uh, completely inaccurate. Um, There are some cases when medical conditions make uh, uh, that definition works okay, But most of the things that we're talking about are about the human condition. And that's why I think spirituality and faith communities play a huge role in this process. Hmm. Um, that, that's that's kind of a quick rundown of where I'm coming
1: from and, and why I think these conversations
3: are so important.
1: Awesome, thank you. And then Nate, let's get a little intro on you. Uh, maybe what led you to write "Man Enough"? Coming from someone who has, I'll admit, an initial bias against books about you know biblical manhood or womanhood or whatever. I admit I have kind of a aversion to those. But your book was fantastic, I think, particularly because it kind of pushed back on some of what typically surrounds some of those. So can you give us some background on you and and the process of writing that book?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, so I am a pastor. I've been a pastor now, for an ordained pastor in the Reformed Church of America for eight and a half years. Uh, prior to that, I was a youth minister and did a lot of young life. I uh, grew up in a, sort of an evangelical young life culture. And that's where I came to faith. And then after that, moved into the Reformed Church and uh, and, and became a pastor. Um and 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 actually, I'll be honest. I'm 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 very surprised that I end up writing a book about masculinity because, like <laughs> you, I have an aversion to them. Uh, I when I was in college read uh, Wild at Heart, which is a you mm. know, very popular evangelical book about masculinity and takes a very, uh, I would say, traditional or hyper American approach to understanding manhood. Um, and and just never really connected. It always felt like I was an outsider to those. Even while I embodied a lot of those traits like I grew up hunting and fishing I grew up backpacking and downhill skiing and you know enjoying a sense of adventure all of that sort of stuff but never really felt like those books encapsulated uh masculinity and even even my whole personhood I always felt like there was something that was missing from them and so uh uh find myself somewhat surprised that I wrote about a book about masculinity but at the same time very much believe in the message of the book which is that in the christian tradition jesus did not come to make men more masculine uh, but in fact came to make all people more human and so what does it it mean for men to begin to explore what it means to be fully human and fully alive embracing all of who they are uh including emotional uh beings Uh, including people who are weak and vulnerable, all of that sort of stuff. What does it mean to press into that, explore that, own that, and uh, allow that to shape uh, the kind of people that we are in the world?
1: Yeah. So I actually was going to come back to you, Dr. Andrews. I know you talk a good deal about men's mental health. You were on a panel recently about some of those things because there are some discrepancies when we look at um, the statistics of genders and reporting various disorders, right? Women are nearly twice as likely to report depression, anxiety disorders, things like that, about three times more likely than men to develop eating disorders, but men are more likely to report antisocial personality disorder, alcohol abuse, drug, drug abuse, things like that. Could you give us kind of an overview of kind of the, the landscape of men's mental health in particular?
3: Uh, I, I think that it's really interesting when when we talk about this sort of data, um, i always I always caution folks that uh, there's a tremendous amount of interpretation and error um, when we look at gender differences in in folks experiencing and reporting um, uh, psychiatric conditions. Um, women um, are more likely to report um, experiencing distress than men. That doesn't mean men are experiencing less distress. In fact, when you look at the data, the the number of men who die of suicide is uh, three to four times the number of women who um, who die of suicide. Um, so we know that, in fact, the distress level among men is really, really high. In, in fact, the bulk of suicide deaths that occur in our country um, is occurring in, in men, and particularly men aged between 35, uh, over 35, uh, especially white men so um we have a lot of different variables that impact getting it the prevalence of different mental health conditions one of those big challenges that uh, it, it's self-reported right yeah. and, and so um, when we when we look at how men and women communicate, uh, men and women communicate differently. It, it's a myth that men communicate less than women. This is a really one of those really interesting things that for those of us that truly um, want to understand human behavior, uh, men and women communicate the same amount, but we communicate differently, right? And so the way that men communicate is very different than the way that women communicate. Um, Men use a lot more nonverbal communication. Their communication styles tend to be a little more um, uh, in togetherness. It's the the concept that women sit across from each other when they talk. Uh, Men sit side by side when they talk, right? Um, And and so there are a lot of differences. And what we see is there's some clear differences in how uh, prevalent we see certain mental conditions, psychiatric conditions um, in women versus men, based on how willing people are to report them, right? Um, the okay. research is very clear that, that women are more likely to reach out and get assistance than men are. If you look uh, at, at BHR and at crisis lines across the country, you'll see that the majority of callers are female, right? That ranges between 55 and 60% across the country, and that that number's pretty standard, right? Now, that does change when you go to the VA crisis lines because veterans are predominantly a male population, right? But in the general population, you see that women are much more likely uh, to reach out for assistance, uh, formal, reach out formally for assistance than men are, particularly for mental health services. And so um, does that mean men have less depression than women? I don't know that that's true right? Um, we definitely know that women are more likely to reach out and, and, and talk about depression or be identified um, as having depression. This really gets at the heart of the matter and if, if you look at our suicide rate, I would suggest that in fact depression and, and certainly unhappiness, stress, and, and emotional pain is a, at a crisis point in our country um, mm-hmm. and particularly among men because that's, that's where the suicide rate is. Uh, and I, I think this this has a lot to do with, there are many cultural variables around this um, that we can spend a lot of time talking about. Um, how men reach out and get help and, and uh, how we make that okay to do, very, very important. Uh, there is definitely a, a connection I and mean, are you familiar with cultures of honor? Is that a concept that you guys have been exposed to before? Give us a brief, just in case. So uh, cultures of honor is, is a concept that sociologists have, have looked into, and it's it's cultures where um, men are viewed um, as the primary head of household, they're viewed as the breadwinner, um, and they're cultures where if someone is wronged, um, if you wrong a man, that man um, will uh, avenge that that wrong, right? What we find is in these cultures um, that the suicide rate is higher, that there's, there's a connection between... Um, Um, cultures of honor and suicide rate that in fact sometimes the roles that culture or society expects of men um can impact their their wellness so these are all things um that impact um uh male wellness um being able to disclose uh, that you're experiencing physical pain or emotional pain is something that um in some cultures is viewed as a weakness in men right um and, and so I think this is really, when we talk about masculinity, uh, this is one of the things that's really key to me. Um, there is, I think, unfortunately, a lot of male bashing in our culture, right? Um, and that that um, men being men is the problem. And I, I, really, disagree, I really disagree with this tremendously. Um, how culture responds to men and how we shape men and our expectations for men, those are things that can be problematic depending on which community you're in. And, and so I really think we need to change that conversation. Um, and one of the things that's really important in, in my own path is this idea that um, when I was in a really bad spot, my challenges in reaching out and getting help, seeing that as a failure or a weakness almost killed me. Yeah. And so and I, I don't think there's anything inherently masculine about not re- about uh, uh, about reaching out uh, and getting help. There's nothing that's not masculine about that, but but somehow there's a narrative out there that that's a weakness, and and I think that it's fairly common in in uh, throughout not just our country but in in countries uh, across the globe.
1: Yeah, and this gets into some uh, Nate, uh, some of what what your book kind of pushed. You were talking about um, wild at heart and things like that, and in especially Western Christianity, that culture, there does seem to be this hyper-masculine Americanized Jesus, right? And that's kind of what you were referring to there with Wild at Heart and things like that. Do you see some of that, what Dr. Andrews is talking about as well in kind of the Christian context?
0: Absolutely. Particularly about uh, not showing weakness. I think that that is a a trait that we expect from our men that is pervasive both in American culture, but then also within American church culture in particular, that to show weakness is to show yourself as less than a man. And there's lots of scripture passages where that is directly confronted. Where We've got Jesus himself as someone who uh, <clears throat> allowed himself to be overpowered by others and to be penetrated by a spear, to show emotional weakness by crying. Uh, we've got Paul who writes about delighting in his weakness because it is when he is weak that Jesus is made strong, all of those types of things. And while those passages and those ideas are uh, preached by the church, I don't know that they've actually seeped into the the culture of masculinity within the church and within the culture. I think that for many men, particularly those in America, the American ideal of a man as someone who is independent, who is self-reliant, who can make something of himself—you know, the, the, the American— Ideal of rags to riches, right? Where you start out low and you climb the social ladder and you do that based upon your own hard work, your own innovation, your own entrepreneurialship. Those values are extremely strong in American culture. And we expect a lot out of our men. We don't expect our men to ask for help because to ask for help is to rely on somebody else. And I mean, we kind of use some of this language about those who are, you know, in difficult situations as, uh, you know, uh, moochers or, um, people who are taking advantage of the system and while there is definitely some of that that goes on we also have to recognize that there are those who need help in our society whether those be people who are struggling with mental health whether it's struggling financially whether it's you know there's just so many different areas and to make it okay for people to ask for help, no matter what circumstances they're facing, is something that w- would benefit everybody around us. And so I think that that's true in American culture. I think those same ideals of, of, of independence, self-reliance, um, uh, hard work, all of those things have worked into the church such that it, the moment someone displays weakness of any kind, the moment they ask for help, uh, they are seen as less than the ideal Um, And that's especially true for men, I believe.
1: Yeah. So I agree a lot with what you're saying there. Dr. Andrews, how do we start to address some of that? Because Steve always makes fun of me because I do a bunch of research before these things, and so I pull out (laughs) studies and things. But I I have a handful here of different surveys and and studies and stuff, and it seems like time and time again, what's brought up is a a reluctance to get help, things like that, based on kind of that male, I'm I'm afraid to be ostracized, I'm afraid to be judged, uh, even specifically in terms of getting help for mental health issues. What do we do about that? I know that's a huge question, but where do we even start? But it's the question. Yeah. (laughs) It's, 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 It's a really
3: important question. And, and, and there's there's many layers to the question there, there there are several there are several things. One of the things is that people in healthcare providers of services in healthcare care, um, they need to have cultural competence about working with men. Right. Um, one of the things that is really obvious to those of us who provide mental health service is that the way that we provide mental health services is not particularly um, friendly um, to men who seek services, right? This idea that you're gonna come in, you're gonna tell me what your problems are, we're gonna sit down, and we're gonna have this face-to-face conversation. Uh, you will ask for help, and I will help you, right? You will go to a place to do this, you will go to a clinic, or you will go to a hospital, right? All of these things, this, the, the way that we set up this treatment system um, is not particularly conducive for men to reach out and get help, right? Um, it works better for women for lots of different reasons, it, it also it's it's a really old system and, and it's the way we've always done things. Now what is really interesting is that men um, are more willing to reach out and speak to a medical provider about medical concerns, right? So now not not as often as we should. I think that there's lots of us that may, uh, put off going to the doctor, but but men are more willing to talk to their primary care physician um about things going on in their lives than than reaching out and talking to a mental health professional. So particularly around um I, I think just not just men but 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 all of us, primary care physicians and medical settings are ideal places um where men already are, where they're already uh in a place where they're 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 being seen and getting care. And it also normalizes the process quite a bit. So, uh, primary care doctors making uh, conversations about mental wellness and depression and anxiety commonplace in in their practice is one of the things that would be really, really helpful, right? Um, Data shows that anywhere from 40 to 50% of, of people who die of suicide have seen a primary care physician within the last month. Was was depression or suicide talked about at that? Now, those are those are really good things. So primary care um, and the primary care docs, when they hear me say this, the men the, the men and women who were in medicine, they, they're so burdened. The number of things that we we force on on primary care is tremendous. So I get that and I hear that, but I, I do think that one of the things that I think. Is vital in as we think about changing our culture is you find places where natural contact is already occurring, right? So it's really a path of least resistance. Find men where they are already connected and and open up those conversations. That's really important. Love to see that happen.
2: Because as it stands, so I'm a suicide survivor too, Dr. Andrews, and as it stands, I tell people, don't go to your primary care physician. You know, I, if I if I had a kid with cancer, I would not send them to their family doctor. I would send them to a specialist. And so I tell people all the time, don't go there. But if things were to change like you're talking about, if, if those uh, PCPs had the tools and a little more uh, knowledge or at least a solid referral network, uh, that would be a beautiful thing.
3: Yeah and I think this is I think this is really I think this is a really important conversation this idea that hey if if you if I know this person has depression can I get them to see a behavioral health specialist is is absolutely fantastic um, I really do like the concept of healthcare homes, and and the truth of the matter is that most physicians, when people present and say, "Hey, I, I want to talk to you about my mood. I'm not feeling good." Most physicians do a pretty decent job with this. Actually, they they may not prompt the conversation, um, and having your primary care physician in and in, involved, um, if even if you are seeing a behavioral health specialist, having your primary care physician aware that you're that you're 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 um, seeing a behavioral health provider is absolutely vital. One of the interesting things that that folks often don't realize is the bulk of behavioral health services are provided by primary care physicians. Um, There simply aren't enough behavioral health service providers out there. If if you guys have have tried to get people in to see a psychiatrist or get them into a clinic, it can be really, really difficult, right? Um, And and most people are already getting in, in some way, shape, or form behavioral services from their primary care providers. And, and this idea of making sure that we're connecting primary care providers um, and pulling them into and connecting them with behavioral health providers is really important. But we, we all have a role in this. We all absolutely have a role in this. Um, there was there was one of my favorite studies uh, was they took, um, they had adolescents who were seeing their pediatrician fill out a suicide screening form, um, and they said, hey, before um, before you see your doctor, the doctor has important questions to, about, you know, your, your mood and whether you're having thoughts of suicide, and the doctor will look at this um, when um, when you meet with the doctor. The most interesting aspect of the study is that about 17% of the adolescents reported having suicide thoughts to, to, on the form, which was then discussed with their doctor. Now, what's interesting about that number is that when you interview youth anonymously across the country, right, uh, you see a range of about 15 to 17% of youth report having experienced suicide thoughts within the last 12 months. So we know that the anonymous reporting and the, the reporting that these adolescents were giving to their pediatrician were on par. They were about the same, which shows that people have a tremendous amount of trust with their primary care physicians. Hmm. People are often more willing to discuss these things with their primary care doctor than with a mental health professional for, for a lot of different reasons, right? Um, there's so much prejudice and discrimination about mental health services um, and the expectations about what that means that folks are often less likely to disclose having thoughts of suicide to a, to a mental health professional than they are to a, to a nurse or to a doctor. And, and so um, making sure that there, there's several things about this that are vital. Um, doctors and nurses clearly are going to want more training and more support in doing this and getting them linked so that they have those, those tools and those resources and they feel connected um, is really important. Um, and we need to make suicide screening and depression screening a part and parcel of, of our healthcare system. It isn't, this is a real challenge. We have made this artificial distinction between mental and, and physical when they're the same exact thing, right? And that suicide and depression are healthcare issues, not behavioral healthcare issues. So we, we created this kind of separate distinct system that has, has increased the prejudice and discrimination and the difficulty of providing services, and it really gets in the way. And so the model now is of to integrate into healthcare that healthcare includes both the mind and the body. Um, and, and it should also include mind, body, and spirit. Right. These are all important aspects of of wellness. Um, So zero suicide really gets at how do we improve care? What are things that we can do to improve the quality? Um, What are what are what are the best evidence based procedures? What are the best ways to screen? How are we tracking? How are we using data? How are we engaging folks? Not just when we're seeing them, but after sessions, right, that there should be follow-up and that there should be care coordination among providers uh, that, that we're, we've are we got our eye on the ball. Um, if you go and see a doctor and you're diagnosed with a heart problem, or you go to the emergency department, you're diagnosed with a specific heart problem. I guarantee you your primary care provider is going to be alerted to that. There's going to be follow-up calls. Um, my son recently had to have uh, an MRI following a, a, he fell down some stairs we got referred to a specialist. I was getting calls from both the specialist and my primary care physician saying, hey, have you made this appointment? Have you made this appointment? That's excellent care coordination. It's beautiful. We should be doing that with behavioral health as well, right? When someone um, is experiencing depression and we're saying, hey, you really need to see somebody um, uh, from a primary care standpoint, there should be follow-up and we should continue to engage with folks, not, not just in that moment, but after the session as well. These are all things that I think would really improve the way were able to help men, um, as well as all people that are struggling with, with depression-type situations.
1: So l- let me ask this, because we're talking about connecting care providers, things like that. There are a number of studies that I've, I've seen that, that indicate people who are going through mental health crises or emotional crises, that a huge chunk of them turn to faith leaders, their, their, their pastors, their clergy, whatever. Nate, let me ask you here, when we're talking about kind of pushing back against some of those cultural, especially, you know, Americanized Western manly men type things, kind of a two-part question. One, how do we push back against that to help make our ministries and churches, places where people feel, especially men, feel okay bringing those? And then two, where do we go from there? What do we do with some of that information? How do we build that bridge?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. One of the things that I have been trying to do through my ministry, particularly with men, is to help them get in touch with uh, their whole person, right? So uh, how do we help men get access to the emotions that they are feeling? I think Dr. Andrews was saying at the very beginning of the podcast that, you know, men don't feel stress less than women. Men don't feel things any less than any other people. It's just whether or not we actually talk about it or acknowledge it. And as I've had conversations with men of, of many different, you know, from right out of college all the way up to some of the older men in the congregation, actually getting access to what they're feeling has been really difficult uh as soon as I ask them a feeling question you know they tell me about a certain circumstance that's very difficult whether it's a marriage relationship something that happens at work loss of a loved one and I go to that well how does that what's the impact of that on you how does that how does that what are you feeling in the midst of the circumstance What I often hear back is everything they want to do. I want to have these conversations. I want to make sure I take care of this. I want to make sure that uh, uh, this problem gets solved. And I have to continually work at getting back to what is it that you're actually feeling? Are you angry? Are you hurt? Are you frustrated? Are you lamenting something? I mean, what is it that the actual emotion is? And I think that churches can really help men in this role If we look at the whole of the biblical canon, you know the Psalms are full of these moments where you've got David, you know, despairing of the situations that he finds himself out and being very vocal about the despair that he feels, or even the joy that he feels. And and there's the whole range of human emotions is represented in Christian scripture. And to help men get access to that and to destigmatize actually having emotions that Jesus would cry openly over the loss of a good friend, that he would actually cry over the whole city, that he would rejoice and laugh and play with children, right? Like the, all of these emotions are represented in the scriptures and in the person of Jesus. And so to help men uh, know that that is okay and that it doesn't make them less of a a man, but actually makes them more like Jesus, I think that, that can be really, really helpful. Um, I also think that it's, That churches need to be involved uh, in in not just lowering the stigma of having emotions, but actually lowering the stigma of mental health. Uh, or mental illness of any kind. Uh, That stigma is there. In our community, here in the north side of Indianapolis, that's a big thing that we're having conversations with. And the city as a whole is actually trying to coordinate efforts with the religious community, with the schools, uh, with different uh, uh, offices of of the city. So like the fire department, the police department, of how do we all talk the same language? How do we remove from our community the stigma around mental health or mental illness? um, so that we can actually, our goal is zero suicides. How do we, how do we do this? How do we coordinate care? All of that sort of stuff. And, and I think we need to do that, uh, as much as possible in the faith communities need to be a part of that because it is, uh, when we're talking about mental illness, we're talking about physical things. We're talking about the mind and we're talking about the spirit. So mind, body, spirit, they're all playing together. I, I, I also wonder Uh, and this is some stuff that's coming out of my research, and I don't know if this is answering one of your questions, but it's a question that I have as we've been talking. One of the things that I have noticed in men is that men uh, are very concrete, and we uh, we value being able to we value the things that are more concrete, right? So we like we like power, we like strength, speed, agility. You know, you think about sports. Um, can I move something in the world and have an, a very active agency? Um, women tend to be more relational. Uh, and Dr. Andrews gave that great example of how women uh, solve problems face-to-face and men do go, you know, shoulder-to-shoulder. Like, that's just how we, we tend to live. Yeah. Uh, I, and I wonder if, you know, men are really... Okay, going to their primary physician because my primary physician typically is going to tell me the next steps. This is what you have to do. Here are the concrete steps to solve the problem that you're facing. Uh, you're struggling with a heart condition. Here are the concrete steps that we need to take to fix that. You uh, you know, whatever else the problem may be, they just, there's a concrete step. Maybe part of the stigma is wrapped up in with mental health. All I'm going to do is sit around and talk about my feelings all day and I'm not going to feel like I'm making any progress. Um, And I wonder if even just removing that stigma and getting there to be a very concrete plan for men wouldn't help in – And even broaching some of those conversations, those deeper emotional level conversations, like here's why we need to have these conversations. These conversations are manifesting themselves in these places. And if we can get to these deeper levels, we're actually going to be making, you know, we're not going to sit here and talk all the time. We actually want to be making progress towards a more holistic way of being in the world. Hmm.
1: No, I think that's good. So let me ask both of you or either of you, what are, because you're talking about getting faith communities involved in breaking down stigmas and helping people get to treatment and things like that. And Dr. Andrews, you were talking about kind of along the same lines, connecting our, our care providers. What are the best ways, good resources or organizations or things like that what are what are steps if i'm if i'm a church leader listening to this or uh, or someone who works in a ministry or something like that what do i do like what are the i know it's funny because we were just talking about action steps but but what's the what are my next steps in terms of how do i get my my people especially my men into some good care if i if i if I manage to get them talking about the things that are hurting them, talking about their emotional health, their mental health, what are my ne- next steps? How do I learn more about those things? How do I connect those men other than, say, go see somebody?
2: Or to add to that, how do I get them past just, oh, brother,
0: I'm going to be praying for you? <laughs> well, uh, let me say, from as a pastor, one of the things that I think is vitally important is That I am not only aware of the different mental health um, professionals or organizations or whatever that are in my community, but I have actually sat down with different mental health um, professionals, leaders to ask what they think would be. Like, I'm not a mental health expert at all. Uh, I am a pastor. I have some pastoral counseling training. uh, But I think one of the most dangerous things is for me to operate as if I can be the the person who's going to help this person get through this. I can be there with the person. I think that this that's my role as a pastor is to walk with somebody through whatever it is they're facing whether that's depression or an anxiety issue or some other mental health issue that's that's uh, manifesting in their life. But to not see myself as a solution but somebody who's just going to be a guide walking with them alongside of them, pointing them in different directions, but in order for me to do that, I actually have to do the work of sitting down with different mental health professionals in my community, know who they are, know what resources are available uh, so that I can be the best guide possible. So for me, as a pastor, that's how I see my role, and those are some of the things that I'm doing so that when somebody comes into my office or I'm out for lunch or whatever and it comes up, uh, we can begin to uh, take those next steps.
3: This is all very wise, I mean, I love you guys. Everything you're saying is is just really resonating with me. There's some easy steps, and I think talking about action steps is really powerful. One, we need to make sure that our faith communities are more closely connected and aware of available resources. Most areas in the country at least have some crisis line representation. Most crisis lines love doing trainings and actually can come out and do educational trainings um, and come out to the church um, and do that. Um, my CEO um, is very active at her church, and she um, has BHR, and we do this at other churches as well. We come out and we'll do depression screenings. We'll, do, we'll, do, we'll come out to the church and do um, educational trainings on, um, on depression and on suicide. One of the things that churches can do is collaborate with local agencies, local crisis resources. Um, and then bring bring those resources actually to the church. Um, I'm actually going to be doing a series of talks um, at a uh, over uh, in November. Um, I'm going to do like four or five presentations at, at church services uh, through a whole weekend, and I'm really really excited about that. Uh, so I think that one of the things that that church leaders can really do um, to, to to fight the prejudice and discrimination is is to bring this into the church. It's so much easier for people to hear this in a place where they're comfortable. Right. Mm. And we're we're modeling so much when 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 a church when a church says, hey, this is this is your your wellness is so important to us that we're going to bring experts here to talk about that. It it sends an incredible message, making sure that folks know about um, crisis lines is really, really key. People can contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Um, that, that number is 800-273-825, um, 800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K. There's also a crisis text line. Um, you can text 741741. You can do this anonymously. You don't even need to leave your home. You, you, can, you can actually text and and get a hold of a a trained um, crisis worker, or you can call the the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline anonymously and just talk and and reach out and get help. A lot of folks aren't even aware that that is available to them. There's no no charge. Um, It's something that's already funded through other resources. And if we build these sorts of things, if we build in um, these layers of, hey, we care about you. We want you to know that there's help available and here's there's lots of different ways that you can get help. You can talk to your doctor, you can go see a therapist, you can call a crisis line. And um, the concept of agency, self-agency that that was mentioned is so absolutely powerful. When when they did some when they did some research on one of the number one barriers why people don't reach out and get help, Prejudice and discrimination was was up there, but it wasn't it wasn't the, the biggest problem. One of the biggest barriers was the sense that I should be able to handle this on my own. Right? Mm. I I I should be able to do this. That we have we've done a couple of different things. We've we've separated emotional pain from physical pain, which is by the way, a absolute huge mistake. the The more and more we know about the human brain, the emotional pain receptors when when people are experiencing tremendous emotional pain and when they're experiencing tremendous physical pain, the same areas of the brain are actually lighting up on these neuroimaging studies, right? Yeah. Emotional emotional pain and physical pain are they're pretty much the same thing. They might have different causes, but we experience them and 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 it's pain is pain. Here's an, – and, and I, I'm going to go off base, but here's the other interesting thing. One of the things – Dr. Joyner's work on the interpersonal theory of suicide. Yeah. One of the things that he found – it's good stuff, uh, right, Robert? One of the things he found, and this is often shocking to people, high pain tolerance. High pain tolerance is associated with a higher risk of suicide behavior, not not a lower risk, Right? People who tolerate and can tolerate high levels of pain are more likely to die of suicide. Right? What we see is that people are holding this pain and they're so strong and they're so resilient and they're, 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 they're holding this pain inside and they're they're bearing, they're, they're just gritting their teeth and they're fighting through it until it completely overwhelms them. Right? If, if we can get the, if we can get those folks to reach out and get help. Um, uh, when they're feeling that pain, um, we're going to reduce their risk of suicide, right? And so it's, it's one of those things we, we, we hit around. The, we've talked about this, but um, fighting mental illness is viewed as a weakness. If you want to talk to some of the strongest people on the planet, talk to the men that are struggling um, with depression and they're keeping it to themselves and they're bare knuckling it through their days. These are incredibly strong men extremely powerful men, right? And they're, and they're bearing this tremendous amount of pain because they don't want to burden other people, right? These are the sorts of things that we need to be chipping away at, and not even chipping away, just blowing up, that you are strong, and that that one of the ways that, that, that we tie into self-agency is here's some other ways that you can do on your own and I think one of the things that you're going to see is, is an evolution in healthcare that people can get services where and when they want them. This idea of having to go into an office to get services is incredibly daunting. When I first started working at the crisis line 18 years ago, I was amazed taking crisis calls. How how much suicide and depression were out there. I started realizing that it's a small subset of people who are fighting emotional pain that ever make it into a clinic. The barriers for somebody to get into an actual office and sit down face to face with somebody is tremendous. The more that we can make services available and, and create the sense of self-agency, you can get services the way you want them when it's convenient to you, particularly anonymity. I think anonymity is extremely powerful, right? Um, I, I, I hope that we reach a day and an age where people don't feel the the need um, to, to, to keep this private, that they're more comfortable talking about this more openly. And I think we're getting there. But in the meantime, being able to get services to people anonymously is incredibly powerful, right? Right. And I think, and particularly for men, it's it's very powerful um, that they can reach out and 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 do so without having to give a whole bunch of personal information. It's it's life saving, really. So so making sure people know about the services, making sure that this is another thing. Um, the faith communities have an important role to play in the systems of care, right? and making sure that we have representation um, from, from the faith community. When we're talking about system redesign and we're talking about how we reach people, um, we're missing so many folks and so many opportunities by not working really closely with the faith community. Um, faith is a tremendous source of strength for people in our country. And, and, and if we can connect these dots, if we can connect the helping services with the faith-based community, we're, we're really going to be so much more helpful to people. And and help them be more successful, and help them be more wow. I think it's a win win.
1: Yeah, you mentioned Thomas Joyner, Doctor Joiner. Uh, I, I think we've mentioned him before, but his books, Why People Die uh, Why People Die by Suicide and Myths About Suicide, some of my favorites. He also actually has a book called Lonely at the Top, which talks about men's mental health, funny enough. So Dr. Andrews, I know you have to you have to go here. Um, I know you have another appointment. Thank you so much, Nate. I actually have one more question for you if you're willing to stick around for a second. Yep, oh, th- sure.
3: Thank you, guys. Uh, it was a treat. Enjoyed. And if you ever want to talk more, just let me know. I
1: appreciate it. You have a good day. Thank you Thank so you, much.
2: Dr. Andrews. Appreciate you being here.
1: Nate, let me ask you, when we're talking about – encouraging our our men to talk about these types of things. We did an episode a while back on sharing your own story and how that tends to help people. And I wonder if, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this, because time and time again, we see church leaders, particularly men who are pastors of, of big, expansive churches, have their fall from grace per se, right? Where they've Come out that they've been dealing with something for years or, or months, right? On uh, substance abuse or you know some. Where where is our role and responsibility as church leaders to talk mm. openly about our struggles, and how how does that impact the men in our in our church communities?
0: Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things that work on this. You know, just as men have this expectation placed upon them by society that they are going to be strong, that they're going to have it all together, that they're going to be good leaders, because all men are expected to be leaders. Uh, Like That's sort of the model for us, right? So as as that expectation is placed on, on men in general, I think within church culture, there's another expectation placed upon pastors, whether they're men or women, But placed upon pastors, that pastors will have it all together; that their relationship with God is always going to be solid and free of doubt; that they are going to know the right things to do in every situation; that they are never going to be overwhelmed by the circumstances of life or by the world; uh, that they're just able to be able to take everything that's thrown at them with a certain level of grace, um, and uh, be able to handle it in. you know, like, they're going to be the ones, so here's a way to say it, they're going to be the ones who we can vicariously live our faith through, right? Like, that's the expectation mm, for pastors, Yeah, that I am going to have a good relationship with God because my pastor has a good relationship with God. I have a good family. I'm going to feel like my family life can get better because my pastor has a good family. So we live our faith vicariously through our faith leader, whether they're men or women. And in these big, expansive churches, that expectation is just exponentially greater. Um, And so there's this pressure placed upon the pastor. I can't let people know that I don't have it all together. I can't let people know that I'm struggling with alcohol or that I'm being tempted to uh, step outside of my marriage relationship. I can't let people know that I have doubts or that leading this massive system is just wearing down on me and I'm exhausted. Um, And so Without the ability to actually talk about their struggles in any sense of community within the church, I think we just bottle it up and it and and it shove it down until it can't be shoved down anymore, and it pops out in one of these ways that we see a pastor fall from grace.
2: Yep, um, that was totally my experience from a, from a small well, not a smaller thing, but just from a different angle for me being on um, anti anxiety medications prescribed by my doctor. There was so much shame around that for me in the southern rural, small Baptist church that, you know, uh, nobody could know that I had to take uh, medication for anxiety. I would keep my prescription bottle in my lunchbox. I would take my lunchbox into the staff bathroom and lock myself in there so that I could take my medication when I had to have it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And you're referencing
1: specifically when you worked
2: at a church, right? I am referencing, yeah, when I was working at the church. That's right. Right. Um, And then the other other side of that, from the addiction side, I have written openly for quite a while now about a 20-year addiction to pornography. And, you know, that started when I was a teenager in the church, and I was talking to – youth leaders, the youth pastor about it going, man, I need help. Like I'm, I am majorly addicted to this thing. And, uh, you know, all I got was a prayer and, you know, Hey buddy, we believe in you. And so, yeah, to give, and it just got worse for 20 years, but to give leaders a space to say, Hey, I don't have it all together. I'm really struggling with this. It's so needed.
0: Yeah. And I think you're also right. There's there's a certain stigma within the church because we have this expectation that Jesus will fix it all. Right. That's and right. so yeah. you're struggling with anxiety. We'll cast all your cares on him, brother, because he'll care for you. Right. We just yeah. kind of throw that verse out. Just there choose joy, me- brother. Choose joy. Yeah. Exactly. And we throw that verse out there without an understanding between the distinction of I am anxious in the midst of this situation, right, versus I have chronic anxiety. If, uh, I, I do some work with family systems, and it's the difference between acute anxiety and chronic anxiety, mm-hmm. or, you know, the the difference between I'm anxious because I'm going pu- to speak in front of a bunch of people versus I have mental, you know, like there's this chemical f- imbalance in my brain that is making me feel like... Uh, like, I'm anxious all the time, right? Those are different things. And, and I don't think that Jesus is talking about the the mental illness of anxiety when he says, cast all your anxieties on him and he will care for you. I also think that it's a complete misuse of the verse to throw that out there. Because even if someone is struggling with anxiety, yeah, you can cast that anxiety. But that isn't going to be a simple one-off prayer and, oh, it's done. That's going to be a way – it's learning a new way of being that uh, that also may – involved getting some help with uh, medical doctors and medicine and a counselor, and it may take years for someone to learn how to do that in a way that is resulting in significant change in their life. And so uh, sometimes we, we use the Bible as if it is a, a cure in an unhelpful manner. And we have to be a lot more sensitive. We have to have a more holistic understanding of personhood, of scripture and prayer and the communal life of the congregation so that we can really walk alongside of those people who need uh, need a space where it's okay to not be okay and to share without fear of <laughs> shame, judgment, and condemnation, right? Mm. Um, so... I think that that's a lot of where the church has to do work. But what the church also has to do then is really press into the idea of creating communities of grace and truth. Uh, and, and I think that's a different way of being for the church than what we've experienced in the last 20, 30, 40 years or however long.
1: So good. Well, hey, thank you so much for being here. Do you have any closing words for us uh, before we kind of wrap this up?
0: uh not really thanks so much for having me on here uh felt a little bit out of my league but at the same time i do think that uh that uh the idea of communicating a message to men that it is okay to be weak it is okay to show that and it's okay to ask for help is so incredibly important whether we're talking about it in culture or within the church I i think that's huge so thanks for hosting this conversation
1: Absolutely. Well, that is Nate Pyle. You can connect with him on Twitter at Nate Pyle or go to NatePyle.com as well as check out his book, Man Enough. Uh, You can find that on Amazon or wherever books are sold. There'll be a link to it in the show notes. Dr. Andrews, you can connect with him on Twitter at Bart Andrews. As always, you can connect with Steve on Twitter at IamSteveAustin or com. You can find me at Robert RobertVore or Robert-Vore.com. And all the info for connecting with CXMH will be in the, the closing credits there. Nate, thank you so much for joining us. A huge thanks to Dr. Andrews. He already left, but a huge thanks to him as well. And that should do it.
0: just as a word, my Twitter is at NatePile79.
1: Oh, shoot. I thought I had that.
0: <laughs> no, you're fine. There's actually mm-hmm. another at Pyle, so uh, yeah, at NatePile 79 that's my Twitter.
1: Uh, okay, my bad. Apologies. No problem. Awesome. Well, thanks so much.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening to the CXMH Podcast.